You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 17th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, the missile that exploded in Poland does not appear to have been a targeted attack by Russia. We'll discuss the ongoing ramifications. Then to China, where anti-lockdown protests have been taking place, and to Iran, where demonstrations continue, met by extreme violence from the authorities. Then, as British supermarkets start to ration eggs, we'll get the latest on the avian flu epidemic. And we'll hear about the soft power of Korea's cinema industry. The major function is to let the people to know how diverse and how beautiful and how interesting and enjoyable Korean films are. With a quick hit of business news and a browse of the front pages, that's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. Republicans are projected to win a majority in the US House of Representatives, with 218 seats secured in the midterm elections. North Korea fired a ballistic missile earlier today, the latest in a record number of tests this year. And almost 6,000 people will be released from prison in Myanmar in an amnesty time to coincide with Myanmar National Day. Do stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, NATO met yesterday to discuss the missile that detonated in Poland, killing two people, which many feared would lead the military alliance to consider triggering Article 5, the Mutual Defence Pact. The Secretary-General, Jens Stoltenberg, briefed the media afterwards, saying that there was no indication of any deliberate Russian attack, adding that the blast was likely caused by Ukrainian defences. He added this was not Ukraine's fault and that the incident wouldn't have occurred if Russia hadn't launched dozens of cruise missiles at targets all across Ukraine. Well, I'm joined now by uh, Mikhail Baranowski, who's a senior fellow and director of the German Marshall Fund's office in Warsaw. Uh, Welcome to you, Mikhail. Uh, Can you expand on Stoltenberg's remarks, please? Absolutely. So what we now pretty much know, though there is some level of disagreement between between NATO uh, members and and Ukrainian side, is that it was not a Russian deliberate attack, but it was Ukrainian anti-air and um, missile that struck Poland. Now, what's very important to remember, and this is what Secretary General talked about is that this this um, missile would not fall had there been no Russian attack on Ukraine. And in fact, the the day that this accident, tragic accident, happened, um, Russia launched the biggest attack on Ukraine in many months. I wonder how much control of the reaction rests with Poland. Would the country, would Duda have to call for Article 4, which, as we know, uh, countries can use this if they think their security is threatened. Uh, Would they have to call for that to be implemented in order for this to escalate? Well, if uh, the Polish government, uh, in connection and in cooperation with our allies, 
decided that there was a real evidence that this was a Russian attack. And on top of this, or Russian missile, let me put it this way. And if there was evidence that this was deliberate, um, we would certainly have consultation first under Article 4. And then if this was a, a deliberate armed attack against Poland, against one of the NATO members, that would um, most likely trigger Article 5 um, uh, under the North Atlantic Treaty. Did ha- this has not happened, of course. Uh, and, and does Duda's non-alarmist attitude echo those of fellow leaders of NATO countries? Pretty much. Uh, although, of course, everyone was looking to Poland um, and to United States also because they have um, they have their assets in the area. There are uh, anti-air and missile Patriots uh, batteries with uh, very precise radars. There are also AWOC uh, um, planes in the air monitoring the, the the situation. So I understand that the rocket, uh, the missile that in the end fell in Poland was monitored in real life by by NATO's assets, uh, either in the air or on the ground. And how has Kyiv reacted to this? Because there have been a few conflicting statements. That's that's right. Uh, both President Zelensky, Foreign Minister, and also President Zelensky's National Security Advisor, emphasised that they are con- convinced that this was not uh, Ukrainian um, uh, S-300 uh, missile. Um they uh, are asking to be part of the investigation in, on the on the site. I think this uh, this request uh, should be granted. Uh, there should be a cooperation with the Ukrainian side. They obviously have very high stakes in this in this investigation. But they seem to have the Ukrainian side seem to have a, 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 an evidence that points in a different direction. Something for both sides to really discuss. So that's what happens next, a full investigation? That's exactly right. A full investigation into what happened. That's step number one. And of course, again, no one is blaming Ukraine, even if it was Ukrainian's missile, because because they had to protect themselves from, um, from Russian attacks. And that points to another thing that absolutely has to happen. Uh, and that's uh, delivering more air and missile defense both to Ukraine and to the frontline states of NATO to be able to protect uh, our territory and make sure that such incidents are less likely to happen in the future. Of course, this is not going to be a safe uh, zone until Russia stops its brutal war in Ukraine and stops bombing the entire territory of Ukraine. And, and I mean, so how vulnerable are people living near the Polish border with Ukraine? Well, the truth is that this incident has clearly showed uh, shown that something that we knew uh, could happen, which is that the, the war um, uh, can spill over into NATO territory. Um, in this case, uh, all points to an accidental spillover. Um, uh, but there have been cases of Russian bombing very close to the Polish border um, on the Ukrainian side. So now we also have, um, uh, first of all, the Polish armed forces 
have stepped up their monitoring, um, including Polish Air Force of the of the border areas. Um, Polish and NATO um, uh, assets are able to look deeper into Ukraine, and, and the, the government and the Polish state is contemplating whether there shouldn't be uh, a system of uh, air raids, um, uh, well, air, air uh, alarms in case of air raids on the Ukrainian side, so the population can be informed quickly in case there is a there is a bombing on the Ukrainian side and it is able to take cover. And how is this actually being covered in Polish media? With a lot of calm, I must say. Um, this is, everyone is uh, trying to get to the bottom uh, and understand uh, all the details. There is a, a very um, unusual for, for us right now a cooperation across the uh, political divide, across the political spectrum in a country that is usually quite uh, quite divided. And, and I do have to say that this, um, this one of the clear lessons from this incident uh, is that this cautious approach and uh, cool assessment with cool head uh, is the right way to go. Um, jumping to conclusion would be would be really devastating. Uh, also for um, alliances and Polish, in this case, credibility. So I'm very glad that it's it's going slow, basically. Mikhail, I wonder if there's a danger that the foreign policy of NATO countries is rather being dictated by Kyiv. I don't think there is, actually. I think, you know, I, this is actually a very good example where... Um, the Ukrainian side um, uh, very early described this incident as a, a Russian attack, um, and and this was certainly a, a, a possibility that it was taken very seriously here. And in fact, we were worried that this was a le- deliberate attack, um, even though, of course, this would be a very bad moment. For Russia to escalate into Russia uh, to NATO territory, but um, but uh, even in a country that is a very close ally of of Ukraine, uh, our own assessment prevail, and our conversations with na- other NATO allies, especially the United States, um, uh, prevail. So I think we are actually conducting the foreign policy in a calm way, but of course with huge support of uh, Ukraine and Ukrainian war effort. Mm. Uh, Mikhail, just quickly before we go, we don't seem to be still talking about the huge amount of refugees coming into Poland. Mm -hmm. Can you just tell us about that situation? Well, so the total numbers are very high, right? About 7 million people crossed into uh, Poland from Ukraine. Many of them went further east, further west. Some of them came back home, about one and a half million to two million uh, live in Poland and are really embraced by the society. The, there is a concern, although at this point not realized, uh, it, it has not happened, that the recent uh, indiscriminate bombing of civilian infrastructure by, by Russia will create a new wave we ha- of, of refugees. We have not seen this uh, Polish uh, state supports Ukrainian refugees also inside 
uh, Ukraine. So it's something that might happen, but hasn't happened yet. Mikhail, thank you very much indeed. That's Mikhail Baranowski there. And this is The Globalist on Monocle 24. in Beijing, 7.12 here in London. Now, China is experiencing a surge of COVID-19 infections nationwide. And in the southern city of Guangzhou, home to nearly 19 million people, daily infections surpassed 5,000 for the first time. The city's been placed under strict stay-at-home orders, leading to crowds of residents clashing with police. Well, I'm joined now by Didi Tang, Beijing correspondent for The Times. Didi, thanks for coming on the show. What are the new lockdown rules in Guangzhou? So whenever a uh, local government imposes lockdown, usually that involves, you know, people staying at home and then the government is going to come to you, you know, with the supplies because you're not supposed even to go out to shop, you know, for the necessities, you know, for the food. So the government will come to you to do the the PCR test and they will come to you for the, I mean, they will come to you to supply the, the, the food necessities. So in the case of Guangzhou, actually, it's interesting in a way that actually it, it has exposed um, some kind of very vulnerable, you know, the the parts of the population. So the protests that happened on Monday night happened in this, we call that one, the village inside the city. So this is kind of the settlement or the neighborhood where Lots and lots, like low-wage, you know, migrant workers, they come, you know, they come to the city, right, and they're looking for jobs, you know, either in a factory or in sometimes, you know, kind of like a workshop style, you know, the smaller, uh, the the plants that they will come to do those, like, uh, you know, the the factory work, uh, the work. So those people they tend to concentrate in one area, and then in those areas, the basic services. Uh, just lacking compared to sort of the traditional, the more established, you know, neighborhoods, right? So in this case, in Guangzhou, it happened in one of those we call, as I say, you know, village inside a city. So those people, they don't get as much, you know, the the support as probably the rest of the population, right? Because, you know, they're migrant workers. Uh, they're not registered, you know, properly. So the government, there's no probably the government doesn't know, you know, where they are, who they are, you know, how many how many of them they are in that village, in, in that, you know, the, the neighborhood. So, but anyway, so at the end of the day, it's like they will not get enough supplies. And they will not, I mean, of course, you know, if they will not get enough food. And those people, they were voted. And as you say, look, one thing is like, they already, you know, they're not making tons of money. You know, they work by the day. You know, they get paid by the day. If they get locked down, they don't get income. And then on Secondly, you know, they're not getting enough food, right, because they're being locked down. So um, so that w- was why sort of all the sentiments, you know, the anger, the frustration, they broke out. And then they say, like, you know, tear down the, you know, the barricades. And you can see they were trying to get the food, right? And you, after the protest, you see the rice, you know, spill all over, all over the ground. Uh, so and all the anger, maybe we're attacking the volunteers. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah. I just wonder how many people were involved and how widespread these protests are and, and what the authorities' response have been to them. So uh, I, I would think at least hundreds. You know, we have to just, you know, 
what you have to guess, you know, based on the video that's being available circulating online. Uh, in China, social media, like I will go to Weibo very quickly, all those posts, they have been deleted. But you sort of can see, you know, you know it happened, you know, from what people say. Oh, you know, there was something, the trouble happened, you know, something happened last night here, there. So, and then I think the area, uh, actually, it's not as big as we probably think. It's probably in one or two, so one street. I think it's like one, we call that the street. So we're talking about probably four or five blocks. You know, if you're thinking about residential kind of the city, you know, four or five blocks. I think that's, you know, one street involving four to five blocks. I don't think it's that, you know, widespread. It's just in one. As I say, we call that what the village in the city, right? So it's a concentration of houses for the the poor, you know, the migrant workers. And again, like, you know, the, but then we don't know how many people are there because, you know, one small apartment, maybe you think it's only for one person, but maybe they will be able to cram in like eight workers. Um, but judging by the the video, we're talking about hundreds. That's like I think easily hundreds of people they were involved in the in the protest. Mm. I wonder how unusual it is to see public protests like this in China. Uh, it's it's very unusual. Usually here, I think people they were just like you know if there's a lockdown, you know, um, it's very hard for you to even to get out, right? You know, to get out altogether. So in this case, you know, I said because it's a kind of concentration of workers. So it's probably more likely for them to be able to communicate with each other to do something. Otherwise, you know, once there's a lockdown, you're kind of separate from each other, right? You're in your residential compound, you know, someone else is in another residential compound. The security guards, you know, they're at the gate. You won't be able to go out and other people won't be able to come in. So overall, I was thinking, you know, in the last three years, because of COVID, you know, control and the prevention, the prevention control measures, um, the likelihood for any kind of mass you know, gathering, right, has really gone down, like, drastically, just because people can't, cannot move freely. And then there was one case earlier this year, you know, some of the people, the, the bank depositors, you know, they found their money were disappearing. From, the, the, money was, the money was disappearing from bank accounts. So they were trying to travel to the city, Zhenzhou, right, to, to do some protests. And what they found out is, like, their health code, <laughs> you know, turned it, like, yellow and red, and which means they could not even get on the train or like, you know, as those kind of checkpoints everywhere, they will be stopped. So overall, like it's, it's getting very hard for people together. So a protest like we saw on Monday, on Monday in Guangzhou, is, it, it was very rare. Mm. Uh, and I mean, the authorities really cracked down, didn't they? The uh, crackdown, if there's any kind of, you know, the, the, if there's any mass protest or any kind of gathering, right, you know, to, to air your grievances, right, this is something that the government does not tolerate at all, whether, you know, it is in, during the pandemic or not. Even before the pandemic, we call those like, a, you know, mass incidents, right, before, before the pandemic, you know, began in late 2019 and early 2020, right? Before that, you know, Chinese, uh, the members of the public, they will gather, you know, to protest some sort of a chemical plants or like incinerate, incinerators for for the, 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 the rubbish, right? And then those people, they were trying to gather. So for the Chinese government, no gathering. That's, I think, because you, once you see the masses, when they mobilize, right, when they are mobilized, they gather, they have one political appeal. And that's considered a, uh, a something very risky, you know, for the government. They're going to, whatever it is, whatever the appeal is, whether it's for environmental causes, uh, or some other, you know, issues, right? The the government is going to like is always 
will always come down, you know, to crack down because they don't want any kind of gathering to snowball, you know, to become more widespread and then to include even more political demands. Like maybe they say, oh, we don't want this chemical plant right in our backyard. But what if, you know, they gather and more people should join and it's going to become sort of more like political movement. The government is very, very careful. They want to make sure it's, you know, you stop it as early as possible. So generally speaking, the Chinese government does not tolerate any mass gathering. Didi, thank you very much indeed. That's Didi Tang there. Now, still to come on the programme, we take a look at how South Korea is wielding soft power in the world of cinema. The major function is to let the people to know how diverse and how beautiful and how interesting and enjoyable Korean films are. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Now, the human rights situation in Iran continues to deteriorate. Since Masa Amini was killed by authorities two months ago, there have been protests across the country met by violence from the government. Over 326 Iranians have been killed and more than 14,000 have been arrested. At least five protesters have been sentenced to death and there are reports that many more are also facing execution. The British intelligence organisation MI5 says it's blocked at least 10 attempts by Iran to kidnap or kill UK nationals. Well, I'm joined now by Benoit Faucon, who is a senior reporter at the Wall Street Journal. He covers Iran, Libya, Algeria and Nigeria and has just returned from Iran. Benoit, what did you find there? Uh, When I was there, I was there before the protests, but um, I did find a society that was changing rapidly. Uh, compared with my previous trips, uh, which I've been kind of, you know, I've been there for about 10 years, you know, uh, every six months on average. And this time there were there were entire, you know, crowds um, of women in Tehran who were unveiled, which was completely unprecedented before you'd, you may have seen one or two, um, you know, but here it was it was becoming the norm in some places. Um, and it, it's obviously something that, you know, people wanted to keep um, as permanent. Um, and, and so that explains why you have such a movement right now. Mm. Now, there's a, a very widely shared video which has been verified in which security forces appear to open fire on dozens of commuters at a Tehran metro station. Uh, do we have any detail on that? Well, what, what we do know is um, they've been using, you know, um, Let's say they've been firing bullets of, of, or projectiles of various kinds um, since the early days, uh, but it seems to have sort of escalated from initially, uh, let's say, pr- the provinces like Kurdistan or, or Baluchistan, you know, on both sides of the one side of, of the border on the Pakistan side, the other one on the on the uh, Iraqi border. 
Um, but now it's moving center. It's moving to the sort of core Persian-speaking, you know, areas of the of the country. Um, and also, there's been another escalation. I've actually I've spoken to to survivors where they move from pellets, you know, projectiles that don't always kill, put it that way, uh, but could be lethal, to uh, to live bullets. Uh, so you see an escalation of, of the government's response because they are unable to, to control the movement. Mm. Uh, and we understand on Wednesday, special forces opened fire on students uh, in Kurdistan University. Students do seem to be bearing quite a lot of the brunt of this fight back. Well, students and interestingly, for the first time, school um, schoolgirls and, and, and boys, you know, like really uh, the younger generation who is, is completely disconnected from the regime, or put it differently, the regime is disconnected from them. They kind of live in two different bubbles and they don't really connect. Um, and so for them, it's kind of a normal life, the one that would be sort of a secular, you know, um, living in a secular political regime. Um, and that's not what the regime wants. They want to keep a, a theocratic principle. Mm. I wonder if there's an element of terrorism in this. We're, we're hearing that on Wednesday, armed people on two motorbikes opened fire on protesters and security forces. I mean, are, are these other elements just taking advantage of a chaotic situation? I mean, I, I, this was a little bit of a surprising uh, development because the, the protesters have been really unarmed. What we have seen is what you know again um, a very surprising attack on a mosque um, in in Shiraz that was you know a little bit which was claimed by ISIS but ISIS has claimed a lot of you know operations that was very um, atypical because um, because it was carried by um, a, a gunman who was not a suicide bomber and that should be the operandi modus operandi for for ISIS that operation that attack as well was was very um, surprising what we have seen though is a lot of uh, operations involving plainclothes officers uh, from um, from the government, either the police or the Revolutionary Guards. That was the case, especially in, in Zahedan, where you know a large number, uh, some of them um, were killed. Some of these uh, operatives from the government were, were killed, um, but they started to attack the crowd. And most of the death on on that uh, you know on that particular incident were. Uh, you know, um, killings by plainclothes officers. Mm. So it's difficult to know who is who. Now, there are varying reports of death sentences. One figure released was uh, 15,000. How did that figure get out there? And is there any truth in it? Well, I think the number of 15,000 is the number of of arrests. Um, They're not going to always be charged um, in ways that could lead to a death sentence. Remember the death sentence in Iran for political or politically related, you know, crimes is two specific charges. One is corruption on our earth and the other one is enmity of God. The majority of the charges are not those charges are much more minor. And the 15,000 would be people who would be detained, but not necessarily kept in jail. A lot of people are, are, are released once, either when they sign a paper saying they won't protest again or when they've been sort of interrogated and 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 there's a sense from the authorities that they won't go back to the street, so I would I wouldn't say fifteen thousand would be would be sentenced to death, but many of them would be. I, I mean, we've already heard that I think at least five people have been executed. Oh, I would say correctly have been sentenced to death, um, and could appeal uh, their sentence. Um, so we don't know where this is going to lead. But yes, that puts a, a number of people at risk, um, you know, as, as a 
victims somehow victims of a collateral, you know, of, of the of the violent response. Now they may have committed crimes. There could have been violence. We don't know. Uh, but the, the the certainty at this stage, according to human rights relation, uh, uh, organization, is that the due process hasn't been respected in these cases. Mm. Now, MI5, the security organization here in Britain, says there have been at least 10 attempts by Iran to kill or kidnap people in the UK. What more do we know about that? What what I do know, and this is from my sources in Tehran, is that the UK is the prime target. Obviously, the government, you know, in, in Iran, or to be accurate, the security services in Iran, because they don't always think the same as the rest of the system, uh, needs a diversion, uh, you know, needs to drive attention somewhere else. Uh, and the UK host Iran International, which is, a, you know, a Saudi-controlled um, broadcaster who has been very active in reporting about the protest, and BBC Persian, which is also a very key source for uh, for Iranian protesters. And that makes it really uh, a, a prime target among other European nations uh, that, you know, um, the Iran security sources are very unhappy about. Yeah. Benoit, in your opinion, does this show that the regime will stop at nothing to quell this? Or are they running scared that it just might be successful? I don't think they're running scared um, in the sense that they haven't even exhausted all the means that they have at hand to, to crack down. Um but they are actually, you know, they they um, don't see any. They not they're not showing any sign that they will bow to the protesters' demands. That's really been a trend since the beginning. There is no um, talk of uh, softening the dress code, for instance. Uh, the only response, really, in practice, has been, you know, more violence and words of appeasement. But actually, that wasn't followed by any change in policy. Benoit, thank you very much indeed. That's Benoit Faucon there. And here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. Republicans are projected to win a majority in the U.S. House of Representatives, with 218 seats secured in the midterm elections. The victory creates a divided government as President Joe Biden's Democratic Party holds control of the Senate. North Korea fired a ballistic missile earlier today, the latest in a record number of tests this year. In a statement, the country's foreign minister warned of fiercer military responses to US efforts to boost its security presence with its allies in the region. And almost 6,000 people will be released from prison in Myanmar in an amnesty time to coincide with Myanmar National Day. State media announced that this includes four foreign nationals who've been held for months. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. In Europe, authorities have culled almost 50 million birds so far this year as countries attempt to contain avian flu. That's according to the EU's Food Safety Agency. This is affecting Britain particularly badly. And earlier this month, all poultry and captive birds in England were ordered to be kept indoors. This is having an effect on the availability of eggs and impacting the Christmas turkey market too. Well, Dr Chris Smith is Monocle's health and science correspondent and joins me now. Uh, Chris... What is bird flu? Hello, Georgina. Well, the answer is that it's the same flu that we get, except it's a 
bird-specific strain. Influenza as a disease is thousands of years old and it began in evolutionary terms as a disease of aquatic birds. And it's periodically jumped the species barrier and caused flu in humans and it causes both pandemics but also epidemics with human strains. But birds have a huge repertoire of these flu viruses that circulate among them and, and have done for thousands of years. Most of the transmissions event, transmission events occur in the Far East because this is where many migratory birds gather around big lakes and watercourses. The infection in a bird is a gut infection. So the birds poop out the flu into the water and then other birds that are sharing that water for a source of water and food pick it up and then you get mass outbreaks and you get mass infection in those birds because they're migratory, when they leave and move around the world, they take the infection with them. And then they seed new infections in new territories and new geographies into indigenous species that are native to those new geographies that the birds migrate to. So in that way, they spread the disease around the world. And this has always happened, but we seem to have, over the last couple of years, seen a big uptick in cases, in this, in this instance, from a particular strain of the flu called H5N1. And this is causing massive outbreaks around the world, or as the UK's chief veterinary officer, Christy Middlemiss, has put it, uh, arguably the biggest outbreak of bird flu we've ever documented. And can it cross the species barrier? Are humans at risk? Yes, they are. And that's how pandemic flu happens, or at least one way in which pandemic flu happens, because although these viruses are very good at spreading in birds, they're very bad at spreading in humans. But that doesn't mean that they can't evolve and change in order to jump the species barrier and cause disease in us. And the people we're particularly concerned about are humans who have close contact with birds. Because if you've got a big flock of birds in, say, a chicken house or a turkey shed, for example, if you have an outbreak there, you may have thousands of birds that become infected and therefore there is an enormous amount of infectivity in the environment. A farmer who's exposed to that environment might therefore run into viruses that are variants or mutants because this happens. Viruses evolve all the time. There is a chance that, that some of those versions of the virus could infect the farmer and either cause disease directly or the other concern is if the farmer, because it's now flu season in the Northern Hemisphere, happens to have human flu, the two viruses, if you get the same person infected with two different types of flu at the same time, the viruses can do genetic pick and mix and they trade bits of genetic material between them and you can evolve a hybrid form of flu that looks like bird flu, so the immune system can't recognise it, at least initially, but it's got all the workings, the mechanism of a human flu that means it grows and spreads in a human very efficiently like human flu. That could spawn a pandemic. To, to the extent of, of, of the one we've just seen or the one we're in the midst of? Well, every about 30 years we have a flu pandemic because you get a jump of a bird flu species of flu into uh, humans. This last happened in 2009 with the swine flu epidemic which became a pandemic so we we know this happens and most scientists agree that it's a question of when it happens not if it's going to happen but the question is how we tip the balance to reduce the likelihood of it happening if we have taken various steps to reduce that risk then obviously we know it's still probably going to happen but we, we make it less likely to happen at this moment in time and those various mechanisms include surveillance doing things like keeping big flocks of birds indoors to stop outbreaks because then you minimize the chances of the virus coming into contact in in lots of birds also with humans and you also vaccinate etc the the people who are looking after the birds so that they don't have human flu at the same time you can reduce the risk but you can never take it away completely
Chris, thank you very much indeed. That's Chris Smith there. And this is The Globalist on Monocle 24. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It is just coming up to 7.36 here in London. That's 8.36 in Zurich. And we'll continue with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is the Austrian journalist and author Tessa Siskowitz. Thanks very much for coming in, Tess. Good morning. Uh, now, you were at the Magnitsky Awards last night, and that, of course, is the award given in the memory of the Russian lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky. Uh, tell us more. Well, I thought we'll start with a, a, a story from Twitter because we don't know how long we'll still do that in newspaper <laughs> reviews or media reviews. Um, so uh, the Magnitsky Awards are being held once a uh, year and yesterday again it was the case. So you find there a lot of awards for people who are active in international, not only Russian-Ukrainian uh, human rights um, and the awards uh, for the um, uh, special award for courage under fire went to the Ukrainian hero Yulia Payevska. She's a volunteer medic and she was captured in Mariupol by Russians in March, although she's a medic, yeah, so she's not a fighting soldier. And she was in, um, in uh, as a prisoner there for three months until she was released. And so she has shown what we now learn to understand is very widespread in the Ukrainian population, a lot of courage under fire. And I thought it's good to mention that also because uh, the Sergei Magnitsky campaign that uh, Bill Browder started years ago to put personal sanctions on regime uh, representatives who are sort of engaged in um, in human rights breaches uh, should be also given some public um, support by us in the media because it has proven to be one of the really useful tools to tell regimes that are breaching human rights that that's just not okay. Mm, I mean, fantastic work by Bill Browder. He really worked hard on, on getting that up and running. Let's talk now about Berlin because the state elections there have been declared void. Why? It's just such an extraordinary story. So there was a widespread chaos, it seems, last year during the elections in Berlin, which has to a good part to do with the um, pandemic. At the time, it was not over. And the um, in the election um, uh, stations, people were just overwhelmed by people coming, too many people coming and not there. Uh, they also did not prepare this well, one has to say, from the side of the Berlin government and so the highest court has ordered to repeat them which after one year of course poses quite a challenge because there's a government in place. The interesting thing is if it actually happens because yesterday it wasn't quite clear what, how and when something would happen now um, but uh, according to Deutsche Welle here this article but also to a podcast I heard at Spiegel um, they are now thinking of repeating these elections which could lead to the fact that the Berlin um, mayor Franziska Giffey is being replaced by her deputy from the Green Party Bettina Jarasch uh, so it's quite an interesting situation. These 
there's a left-wing coalition in Berlin and there might be the, the social democrats might be overvoted by the Green Party members. So it would show a little bit of a change um, also for the mood in Germany for the uh, coalition that is uh, governing also on the federal level between Social Democrats and Green Party. So it's quite an interesting situation, but it shows that a lot of things go wrong in Berlin in the capital. Mm, I mean, and we think of Germans as, as very, very efficient, but just looking at what went wrong, there were four votes held on the same day. Some ballot papers ran, ran out. Some had the wrong candidates listed on them, or they were photocopied. Some polling stations had to be closed. Uh, volunteers were offering to allow voters in if they were prepared only to vote in the federal election. I mean, just this litany of, of things that went wrong. Yeah, and plus they had a marathon that was run <laughs> at the same day in Berlin, so it was really just too much to handle. Oh dear, oh dear. Right, let's move on and uh, we're looking at another German story, but this one here intersects with Ukraine. Tell us more. So, uh, a lot of the German papers this morning report on a new open letter uh, signed by intellectuals in Germany. Uh, this time, Daniel Kehlmann, Wolf Biermann, Hertha Müller, sort of big names, Eva Menasse, they are asking uh, Germany's government and the population at large to support the Ukraine, not only diplomatically, but also militarily. As you might remember, the Germans are like the Austrians, so us guys there uh, in Central Europe, are not always um, clear what support for the Ukrainians in the face of the Russian aggression should mean. So we have two fighting groups of intellectuals in Germany. In spring, there was a letter by Alice Schwarzer and Juli C. and Martin Walser of uh, intellectuals who said it, the Ukrainians should be pacifists and um, there should be negotiations and they should possibly surrender to the Russian aggression. And this other group now here with under the lead of Daniel Kehlmann is the opposite uh, position, which says we have to be in total uh, solidarity with the Ukrainian population uh, in this case. And I think uh, that's very worth mentioning because there is now a shift also in the German opinion. There's a lot of debate about what are the uh, off-ramps for Putin to settle for, for a negotiated position in the Ukraine. But I think we have to always keep in mind that the Ukrainians will not easily stop fighting if it means that they have to compromise on that territory. Absolutely. And Daniel Kelman, of course, a great writer. If people are interested in his work, uh, there's a there's an interview with him in our, in our archives. Uh, finally, let's go to uh, COP27. Uh, and Lula says Brazil is back. Yes, and I think it's it's a, the good news story from the, the we have to talk about the climate summit always not only about uh, activists gluing themselves to the street, which is I think also a good thing, but um, what are the results and what happens at COP27 is quite important. Uh, and uh, since Lula da Silva was now elected president or is the president elect in Brazil, there is a real, real important shift from the Bolsonaro policies of um, deforestating the, the Amazon um, to uh, someone who has a lot more global but also national uh, responsibility. And so Lula vote to reverse the destruction of the Amazon rainforest um, and uh, he would reach zero deforestation. We have to treat all these announcements, of course, with care and with um you know we have to we have to really look if he can achieve it because he has promised this before last time he was president and 
although he changed, he tries his best, I would think, but it's very, very difficult to actually make it happen. Uh, but under Bolsonaro's watch, the annual rate of the forest loss in the Amazon has jumped 75%. So we will certainly see uh, a situation becoming a little less um, dramatic now under Lula. Mm, I mean, he says there's no planetary security without a protected Amazon. Of course, he's right. I wonder how much can be done to reverse the damage, or are we just talking about stopping future damage? Well, as you know, every every uh, tree that is not being felt is good for us. So that's, I think, the way to go. The, the, the level of destruction, Lula said also yesterday, will stay in the past. So how much he will be able to um, uh, reverse or to find new um, uh, initiatives to replant, we will see, because this is, of course, also up to the general situation of being in a in an f- economic crisis all over the place. So if how much he can allocate his attention to this, we will see. But he will try. Uh, and I really like the fact that actually the the, the big three rainforest nations have come together. That's that's Brazil, of course, but also Indonesia and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So these three really all all working together. And also, interestingly enough, uh, apparently there were huge queues for Lula's speech. Uh, I mean, people queued for an hour to get in. So an enormous kind of wave of popularity for this man and for his climate policies. Well, I think people are really grasping every every uh, straw of hope when they when they can get it now, and we had, you know, dramatic climate uh, deniers, climate change deniers like Donald Trump or Bolsonaro, who were uh, governing for a few years, and since 2015, the Paris Agreement, uh, there were so many populist right wing um, leaders in place that people started to despair. So now we are seeing that. At least some of them are being voted out of office and we'll have more responsible people coming back in like Lula. And that's I think that's that explains a little bit why people uh, are really uh, queuing for him and queuing for other uh, uh, leaders who promise at least to try, you know. Tess, thanks very much indeed. That was Tessa Siskovitz. Uh, and this is The Globalist on Monocle 24. Time to talk business now with Chris Johnson, who's the weekend business editor at Insider UK. Uh, Chris, let's uh, talk first about this huge Chinese-owned company, Nexperia, uh, which has having uh, its uh, sale blocked by the UK government. Yeah, that's right. Yes, the the government has decided to um, to block this uh, this deal on national security grounds. Uh, you probably haven't heard of uh, Nexperia or indeed uh, Newport. Um, Wafer Fab, which is uh, in South Wales. It's uh, the only uh, place in the UK that makes semiconductors, which are, of course, uh, you know, so important now in uh, in a whole range of uh, products, not just uh, electronics, but, uh, you know, they're used extensively in things like cars now as well. And, um, yeah, the, the, the government, this, this sort of uh, has been rumbling on for, for quite some time. But, um, yes, they've, they've decided to use powers... Um, under the uh, National Security and Investment Act 
to uh, to block this deal. The fear is that uh, there could be sort of technology transfer to to China. Nevertheless, the uh, the UK boss of Nexperia. Uh, says the company is shocked with the decision, um, and they have vowed to uh, to appeal it. Um, it's uh, the, the company is now going to have to sell the eighty six percent stake that it uh, that it held, uh, taking it back to the fourteen percent stake it ha- it held before launching a takeover last year, according to this uh, government order that uh, uh, was handed down yesterday. So, um, yeah, that's it's it's quite I mean, it's not perhaps an unexpected uh, outcome. There was a lot of uh, backlash from politicians uh, when the um, when the deal was first announced, which is why the business secretary decided to review it. But uh, nevertheless, it uh, will uh, make some Chinese companies uh, think twice probably about uh, wanting to invest in uh, Britain in the future. Yeah. Now, as you say, those chips are also used in cars, and I'm quite sure some of them find their way into Teslas. Now, of course, that trial, Elon Musk and the Tesla compensation trial is ongoing. Do tell us what the latest is there. Yeah, that's right. This uh, this trial began uh, in a in a Delaware court uh, yesterday. It's set to go for a week. It's been brought by a uh, Tesla shareholder who, um, interestingly, is a, apparently also a, a drummer in a heavy metal band that I've never heard of called the Dawn of Correction. But um, but yeah, this uh, Elon Musk was uh, back in uh, 2018 was awarded a a pay plan that um, is now worth about 50 billion dollars because. The value of Tesla shares has soared so much in that time. Um, so it's it's the largest uh, chief executive compensation package in history. Anyway, this um, so yes, the shareholder is, uh, has brought this action against the company, and uh, they're now having to um, fight it in the court. Interestingly, it's the same judge who was presiding over. Uh, the decision uh, when uh, Musk was trying to back out of his deal to buy Twitter. So, and she uh, sort of didn't uh, take any nonsense from him uh, during during that. Uh, so it's quite interesting. But uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, he's also um, it, it's only just got underway. So we're sort of um, we're not very far down the road. It's expected to, to last for a week this trial. But um, Musk, interestingly, was also asked some questions about uh, Twitter. Unsurprisingly. Uh, yesterday, as as it got underway, and said he also he plans to eventually bring in someone else to run Twitter, and that he'll be finished reorganising the company by the uh, the end of the week. Of course, there's been a lot of upheaval at Twitter since he took over the end of last month, uh, sacking about half the workforce and uh, telling them just yesterday the staff that are left that they need to uh, be extremely hardcore to use his expression. And he's given them a deadline of 5 p.m. today to decide whether they're on board with uh, the way he wants them to be or to uh, to also walk away from Twitter. Quite, quite extraordinary story. I'm sure everybody's going to be watching with a lot of interest. Uh, finally, five million or nearly five million dollars. Uh, is that what's that worth in candies? <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's um, it's one of a story that's uh, proved uh, very popular on uh, on Insider in the last uh, day or so. Um, uh, a man in Germany um found a a check made out to um Haribo, the uh, confectionery company that makes the uh the sweets like Tangfastics and and uh, others. Uh, anyway, he saw that um yeah, it was uh, made out to a uh, Haribo for four point six 
million euros or a tad over that amount um, and sort of thought he would do the right thing, contacted Haribo and was told or asked to destroy the check and send send them a picture of uh, proof that he had done so. I mean, the, the check was crossed, so there wasn't like anyone else could really cash it anyway. But, um, you know, as, as a thank you, Haribo decided to um, send uh, a pack of uh, six six uh, packets of Haribos to this man in Germany as a, as a thank you. And he's he's told uh, the Build newspaper he thought that was a bit cheap. Um, <laughs> anyway, it's uh, a bit a bit of fun. We haven't uh, been able to find out from Haribo uh, anything more. It's apparently the standard uh, thank you that they send, uh, send customers. But uh, yes, you might have thought there would be a little bit more of a, a reward uh, after having done such a good deed for them. Chris, I think the most shocking thing about that is that anybody still uses checks. <laughs> uh, well, it's sort of, yes. I mean, it underlines the fact that uh, Germany famously uh, during the pandemic was exposed uh, or revealed to have uh, still u- extensive use within government of things like fax machines. And um, yeah, it's, it was from a, another a German supermarket chain um, that that was uh, trying to make a payment to um to Haribo, so um, yeah, you sort of we sort of have this idea that Germany is is t- terribly te- technology te- advanced, but uh, to some extent, they're still using uh, this things that we've slightly moved away from, Absolutely. perhaps in the UK. Chris, thanks very much indeed. This is the Globalist on Monocle Twenty Four. <laughs> Finally, we head to the movies in South Korea, where the country's film and pop culture industry is thriving on the world stage. And nowhere is that more evident than in the UK, where the London Korean Film Festival is gearing up for tonight's closing ceremonies. The 17th edition featured a rich lineup which showcased the country's cinema industry as one of its biggest soft power exports. The head of the Korean Film Archive, Kim Hong Joon, stopped by Midori House to tell Monocle's Laura Kramer about the importance of the film festival and the incredible story behind the industry's international success. I think that the London Korean Film Festival, the major function is simply to let the people to know how diverse and how beautiful and how interesting and enjoyable Korean films are. And the London Korean Cultural Center performs many different activities. But the film festival is the most popular event, except probably K-pop, I guess. But uh, it is very important because Korean films have been progressed for the past uh, two or three decades. And it embraces both very commercial blockbuster kind of film and also independent films and shorts and documentaries. So it is a very good showcase to represent the diversity of a Korean cinema. Do you think that diversity has been the main driving factor to the success of Korean cultural exports? What's behind this boom? There can be different interpretation as to what made Korean uh, pop culture tick. I think that this may sound very irresponsible and very non-academic and unprofessional, but uh, from my own experience of involving myself in the film industry for the past 30 years, I think that simply we were very lucky. For example, Korean cinema, the major transformation happened at the end of the 20th century, and many things happened at the same time. Rise of the new talent in the industry and also the government change of a policy, which was very favorable to the uh, whole content industry in Korea, and also the sudden uh, emergence of the popular interest in cinema and other culture, cultural aspects, and also 
democratization of the whole nation, which abolished the censorship, and all these things almost happened at the same time. So looking back, it happened as if some invisible hand designed these whole things. So when we need something, it was there. When we need somebody, then somebody appeared. Then I think to put them all together, although we didn't realize at the time, but they really created a foundation for the emergence and success of a Korean pop culture, popular culture, including cinema, uh, at this point. So what I like to emphasize is that the success seems very astronomical and looks like maybe to some non-Koreans who are not familiar with all this uh, cultural history of Korea in the recent early 21st century and the late 20th century, it looks as if we are coming out of nowhere, but actually it is not. You know, there was this strong foundation and a very long period of tri trial and errors by many different people and the collaboration between the government and civil society and the artists and the industry leaders. All these things happened at the same time and some, we were just uh, at the right position at the right time and I, that's what I call luck. You cannot win luck. What do you think the global reach and appeal of South Korea's cultural output says about that sector as a soft power resource? I think the soft power of Korea comes from not from the size of the, the nation, but from the sort of Korean tradition of respecting the individuality in society. It may sound very peculiar to some people who think that the traditional Korean society and the governing ideology was based on the Confucianism, which emphasized you know, all these class structures and uh, hierarchy and things like that. And the official ideology was like that. But if you look at the Korean history, there are many incidents that the Koreans are very individualistic and very staunchly uh, self-confident. We are very rebellious spirit in, in some senses. And that's why in Korea, politics are always at the center of every discussion. And in terms of the cultural activities, that uh, you see many talented people who are very proud of themselves and try to be a very individually successful uh, artist, but at the same time, there's a, this sense of community. So that kind of little, little contradiction is always in the Korean society and then makes the Korean culture so dynamic. As Korean films and other pop culture exports are having such international appeal, do you think the artists feel as if they're representing the country on the world stage? Do they see themselves as ambassadors in a way of South Korea? Probably the government officials uh, who need a reputation and uh, you know their own uh, contribution to the success of all these things like to regard them as ambassador of culture uh, or ambassador, cultural ambassador of Korean society. And uh, it's a very good honor. So they do not reject that. But frankly speaking, I don't think that none of them ever started their career because they want to be an ambassador of a certain nation or whatever. So that's what makes Koreans very strong individual. You stick to your principles. You are proud of yourself. You like to make your artistry perfect. That's why you stay in the field. And whether you are a filmmaker who are worrying about the next Oscar possible project or just a beginning novice K-pop trainee, the goal is the same. That was Kim Hong Joon in conversation with Monocle's Laura Kramer. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Emma Searle, our researchers, Lillian Fawcett and Emily Sands, and our studio manager, Callum McLean. Uh, the briefing is live at midday in London. I'll be back for that. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>